Welcome to Half Finished to Done, a podcast for passionate business owners like you who are ready to stop procrastinating and start finishing all of your half-done projects. I'm your host, Christina, and I'm looking forward to helping you finish your projects in a calm, sustainable way using a simple, repeatable process. All along the way, we'll be working through the mental, emotional, and logistical obstacles that are standing between you and extraordinary projects. Let's get into it. All right. Welcome to the podcast, Karen. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you so much. I am just delighted that you invited me. I have to tell you, I had a dream about you last night. I dreamt that you were at my house in person. We've never actually met in person for anybody listening. And I was really late getting everything set up for the podcast, but I made you a margarita and then you weren't upset with me. (laughs) I love it. That sounds very in character for me. Perfect. It sounds in character for me. I was like, of course, I'm worried about being late. I'm a procrastination coach. This is great. (laughs) Okay. Just start by telling people just who you are and how you ended up here. I'm Karen Gonzalez-Rice. I am a faculty member at a small liberal arts college, Connecticut College, and I do a lot of writing, or I guess I should say I should do a lot of writing, but I have not been doing a lot of writing since the pandemic. So my writing is really what drew me to this program in the first place. I also have a coaching business. I coach Uh, mostly faculty, but also really anyone in academics. And I have, you know, some clients in the nonprofit world and government. I really help folks kind of bring more satisfaction and enjoyment into their lives. We all need a little bit more of that. I've been following your social media posts and I love everything that you're posting about bright, like fulfillment and joy and thank you. I love that. Bringing your whole self to work. So I definitely will link that in the show notes for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you joined Half Finished Done Live right after the bare minimum challenge. So I have tons of questions about this. I will have a separate podcast episode about the bare minimum method, but I'm so curious, what was your experience at the bare minimum challenge? And then how did that set you up to want to say yes to the program? So the bare minimum challenge was transformative for me. It came at a really important time for me you know, I was having some childcare issues that were making it difficult for me to focus. Um, my husband has been commuting to a different city every other week. So, you know, there was a lot of kind of disruption. My kiddo was having some sleep disruption. So there was kind of a lot going on. I was not really functioning at a hundred percent. And the bare minimum challenge helped me understand that I didn't have to abandon my, I was going to say goals, but I think it's really more like dreams. I didn't have to abandon the things that I care about and parts of my identity just because I was having a rough patch. And I can't tell you how heartening that was and really meaningful to have that communicated to me. Um, I'm actually getting a little bit you know, teary-eyed actually, like thinking about how meaningful it was to have that experience, to have you show me how to step into myself, even in these rough times. You're going to make me cry. I get so sentimental talking about this kind of stuff, but I just want everyone to really hear that is I don't have to lose parts of my identity when I go through a rough patch. And I really love that because I'm like, what if who you are during rough patches, what if that's the most you you can be? 
And what if you could be proud of who you are during rough patches? Wow. Oh, yeah. That gives me chills. Okay. So you already started to answer this, but one of the questions that I would love to know the answer to is you thought of doing the bare minimum. How did you think of that before the challenge and how do you think of it now? During the challenge, you know, in those five days, I was really focused on thinking about my stakeholders. You know, that was a new way for me to think about my commitments. And it also helped me connect to my values. So by breaking it down into stakeholders, like who do I owe what kind of became more about what needs do I want to fulfill? Like who is really important in this scenario? So I was really focused on that first part of the bare minimum challenge, like really kind of um, taking that almost like a 360 view of my life, really. And, you know, who am I beholden to? Who am I serving? You know, and then to realize that I am in there somewhere (laughs) and had been a very small portion of that to sort of kind of widen that circle a little bit. That was blowing my mind during the challenge. And I was really focused on that piece. And then the piece that also really stuck with me was going from 60 minutes. So this idea that you sort of identify what's most crucial, what you really need or can contribute. How can you do that in 60 minutes? And then taking that a step further, how can you do that in 30 minutes? (laughs) Which just makes me laugh because every time I do it, even now, that step always makes me laugh. Like I know it's coming and I still find it so delightful. There's something just sort of fun and ridiculous about that idea of like 30 minutes. Okay. So, you know, that I was really taken with that before the challenge. Okay. This is so good. So to put this into context, and again, there will be an episode about the bare minimum method, but that first question of who are your stakeholders right now, the way I explain it is when you look at it through that lens, your brain naturally narrows in and gets constrained, right? I love that you use the word, who am I beholden to? Because our brain, unchecked, wants to be like, I'm beholden to everyone on the entire planet. Seven billion people need something from me (laughs) versus we go, who's actually important in my life right now? And I would even challenge everybody to ask, who am I beholden to that I don't want to be beholden to? Who am I not feeling beholden to that I actually do want to feel beholden to? And so it just shakes up your whole perspective of what you're doing, how you're spending your time, your energy, your focus, and your commitment in order to actually show up for the people that most matter to you. And then I love that you're like tickled by the question. So the question of what result are you going to deliver for this stakeholder, right? What do they most need from you right now? How could you do that in 60 minutes? And then you think you're so clever coming up with a 60-minute task. You're like, oh my gosh, right? I just eliminated 10 hours of work and I got it down to 60 minutes. You're feeling so clever. And then bam, Now you have to do it in 30 minutes. And it's just there to challenge your brain to be more efficient and more creative. So I love watching your reaction to all of this. Just like, yes, this is so fun if you let it be. Yeah. And bringing that into kind of through the program and and now, um, now when I look at my Monday hour one or I look at my to-do list, my brain kind of automatically goes in this mode of like, is this really necessary? Is this serving my the people I value? And I'll, I'll just give you a little example from um, earlier today, actually, and, and yesterday. 
my kiddo's been homesick from school. He's got a little head cold. And I was realizing that this work that I was doing while he's playing next to me, it's just not not very high quality work. (laughs) You know, I'm like really distracted. I'm trying to kind of like create this report that I need to do. I realized yesterday and this morning, it really came back to me too, that this is not quality work. And if I can't do the quality, then I should stop and do something different. That for me comes out of the bare minimum challenge that I can see that I'm not in a deep work session. I can see that I need a deep work session to do this work. So I'm just going to stop and I'm going to rethink what I can do today, given the circumstance of my child being home from school. Okay. That is so good. So I want to use a counter example just to add more nuance. So I was talking to my sister who has toddlers and what she realized was she was like, sometimes I actually don't need completely dedicated, focused, uninterrupted time and space in order to do my work. Like she's like, I'm sitting on my phone, scrolling in front of my kids. And somehow I think that's okay. But my brain tells me it's not okay to work in front of them. And so if I let myself work in front of them, I actually could get a ton of stuff done. So I think it's interesting to figure out for yourself, given the work at hand, is this work that could be done in this context? Sometimes yes. But I love that in your case, you were like, no, this is most conducive to a dedicated deep work session without interruption. Let me just switch without having any drama or any qualms about just switching. So good. Yeah, yeah. Just that like this is just the reality of the situation and and moving on. I will say to your sister's point that I've absolutely found that to be the case too. And this is one of the main takeaways for me from Half Finished to Done has been to really diversify my methods so that some of them can take place while I'm hanging out with my kid. Diversify my methods. I love that as a philosophy of half finished and done live. Thank you for that. I also want to just reemphasize something you said, which is this is the reality of the situation. And I think that's a huge part of all of the work that I do with clients is let's not pretend that you live in this perfect situation where no child gets sick, right? Where there's not last minute things that happen, where you don't get sick. Like, Don't pretend you live under perfect circumstances. Acknowledge the circumstances that you live in, the reality that you live in. Sometimes we can change those things, but sometimes we just need to accommodate that. Yeah, so true. Tell me this, because I think this will be really helpful for anybody who is either in the program or considering the program. I can tell from the way that you talk that you very, very, very deeply have incorporated all of these philosophies automatically into your way of thinking. How did you do that? I did that by experimenting. I tried everything you put in front of us. You know, for example, in Monday Hour One, you know, that last piece of the equation, evaluating as you go. I really tried to take in everything and follow to the letter what you provided, even if it didn't feel good, (laughs) maybe especially if it didn't feel good. That's so interesting. So how did you distinguish between things that didn't feel good as in they were uncomfortable? So maybe you should lean in versus no, this is truly not for me. So I'm not going to do it. Did you have that experience at all? I didn't have the experience of something not being for me. But I think that's also because I was holding it lightly in the sense that if something wasn't going to work for me, it wasn't because there's something wrong with me. You know, it was that I maybe wasn't implementing it in a way that fit with my life right now or 
maybe there's another way that I could learn to do this part of the system. You know, it didn't make it mean anything about me. I don't know if you realize how big of a deal that is. Like, do you get what a big deal that is to not make it mean anything about you? I mean, now that you are uh, pointing that out, I, I could see that. <laughs> like that, I was just at a, I was at a workshop yesterday and we were talking about client-focused coaching where it's like, are you prioritizing your frameworks and your tools as a coach or are you prioritizing the client? And are you believing that the client should fit your framework or are you believing that the framework should fit your client? So as a coach, I'm always trying to look at, okay, am I really focusing the client first and then giving them the tools to support them, right? That's a challenge for sure. But as a client, you really took the responsibility to be like, I'm going to try things. I'm going to push my own boundaries appropriately, not beyond a point that I can't handle. And I'm not going to make it mean anything about me if it's not working. That is so big. It opened the way for me to try new things in my own ways of working too. You know, I was willing to try new ways of writing and new ways of creating drafts and revising my work. I've been writing for a long time. And, you know, these are things that I had not tried in this way before. So I think, you know, your approach and this kind of way of holding it lightly for me really led to some amazing, rich stuff that I found for myself, you know, things that that I'm using now, you know, after the program. Okay. Can you give some examples? Because I'm like, we have to talk about this because your examples are so good and I've told a million people about them already. (laughs) So I want everyone to hear. (laughs) Well, you know, the one that comes to mind because I'm sitting here at my desk, looking at it across the the desk, but using mind mapping. So I have always really enjoyed mind mapping, but I had not thought to use it as like a central way of creating a draft, especially a complicated draft. So I was writing an article that had a lot of moving parts. And, you know, I think I tend to think of mind maps as something, you know, for more of like a simple situation. But I was able to use these mind maps, very complex ideas, and they helped me keep my thoughts organized. And then the other thing that I used was another technique that I had heard from you and that I kind of developed on my own, which was using a voice to text app, whether that was Otter on my phone. Sometimes I used, if I was at my desktop, I would use Google's voice to text to go straight into a document. Um, But then what I was able to do was look at the mind map, and then talk into this voice-to-text app and create a draft from that. So I ended up with, uh, Christina, I don't remember the exact number, but I remember posting in the in the Slack channel, like, I just created like a 5,000-word draft from talking, <laughs> from mind mapping and talking. I have it. Are you ready? Yeah. 7,603 <laughs> words. <laughs> How does it feel to hear that back? I am amazed all over again that that was possible for me in less than eight weeks, right? Because, you know, the time that I was creating those results, to use your language, was, you know, more compressed than the early part of the program and the the end. So it's really amazing. In just a couple of weeks, I was able to do that. Okay. Can I just read your last comment in the Slack channel? Is that embarrassing? but okay. (laughs) (laughs) Probably, but okay. (laughs) Just the way you said it, literally exactly what you just said. You said, friends, as of today, I have created a draft of 7,603 words. So many exclamation points. All via mind maps and voice transcription, which means I completely skipped the tedious middle 
typing out a draft laboriously, back and forth with books, notes, etc. So awesome. I am so excited to print out my draft, start taking the hatchet to it, and get into revisions. And I did this in a week full of distractions with much less time available than usual. I used the bare minimum to get it down to just what needed to be done, and I had fun with it. Yay. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) It just delights me. (laughs) The piece about fun, I think, is so key. You know, to go from a place where I assumed, you know, for many years that writing was about just sitting and, you know, working, right, in this one particular way. And then to now, you know, and mid-career be open to these new ways of writing that are actually really fun, really, really fun. One of the things that I think helped me create and make space for fun was the aspect of the program, uh, the celebration piece of the program that, you know, in my master project plan, I identified not just when to celebrate, but you know, re- you really pushed us to to say exactly how we will celebrate, which was so valuable for me because I think in the past I've just said, "Oh wow, great, I finished. All right, let's move on to the next thing." I didn't really take the time to go on a nice walk or have a nice dinner or you know the things that I had actually written out on my master plan really made a big difference. I want to emphasize a few things there, which are so important, is the first thing is you incorporated celebration into your plan, right? That's just fun. And you incorporated like after the fact, let's say rewards, right? So dinner out. I know some people got themselves. Did you get a mug? Was that you? That was me. Yes. I love it. So you, did you buy yourself a specific mug? Uh, no, I just went through and picked one, although I probably would have if I couldn't find one that fit the project. Like just little touches like that that are so fun. But I also want to emphasize that it's not just about external rewards. You also were committed to making the process itself fun and enjoyable. That is so important because you can have rewards all day long. But you don't want to set it up so you have rewards that you're like, your brain's like, oh, great. I get this reward after the end of this horrible day of work. I'm like, no, have an amazing day at work. Be engaged with your work. Find it rewarding and fulfilling and intrinsically motivating. And then put a dinner on top of that. Like, are you kidding me? It's amazing. (laughs) And sometimes I found myself thinking, do I get to have a reward? Because this was actually pretty fun and I had a pretty good time doing this. So especially when I felt that resistance to the reward, I would do it. I would make sure to do it. (laughs) Okay. I love that so much. Do I even deserve a reward because I already had fun? I actually, jokes aside, think that that's a really important point. I always raise the point that self-proclaimed procrastinators, generally I would say understand that they struggle to face negative emotions, right? That's a huge thing for people who have struggled with procrastination. However, there's also a struggle to sit with positive emotions. And so you'll see this, right? When you're like, I did this amazing thing. Intellectually, I understand that, but my brain's in such a rush to just move on to the next thing. I haven't actually stopped and appreciated what I just did. And so one of the big things in the program is how do you increase your capacity to feel positive emotions and stay in them longer Like I always say, like, what is the maximum amount of time that I can push myself to stay in a good space without having to take myself back down a notch? It's a challenge. 
It is a challenge. And if you don't mind, I would love to go back to this idea of sitting with negative emotions. I totally get your point about positive emotions too. Um, But I think that one of the things that happened in this program for me is that you said to us that like we would have a a freak out at some point or most people freak out at some point and that, you know, this could happen in at sort of key moments, right? And my freak out happened early in the process, like right after I did my first master project plan and I had listed every single thing that I thought I needed to do. And then I had added, you know, the time that they would take. And I took a look at it and I was like, you know, I have just made myself like a three month plan basically. And I completely got very upset about it. I posted many a time in the Slack channel And your advice was basically to sit with it. You know, we did the feelings now worksheet and there were other kinds of things, but it was really just sit with it, right? Like spend some time with those feelings. And that is what I did. And I think just as a human being, I appreciate that opportunity to practice being with a difficult emotion. Because what ended up happening is that I didn't try to solve. You know, my brain so often goes to solutions when I'm still in this mode of kind of crisis and overwhelm. And, you know, what I learned from sitting with this, just spending the weekend, I think I freaked out on like a Friday and like, you know, by Monday, by Sunday and Monday, you know, I had resisted creating a new plan. I had resisted trying to solve. And what happened was the solution came to me quite easily once I had kind of sat with those emotions and I was able to say, oh, wow, you know, I was writing these timings of each task based on fear. You know, I was giving myself a lot of extra time because I was afraid that I wouldn't be able to do it or that my work would not be good or, you know, all these reasons that we have. And really, it's at this point that the bare minimum method started to come back in for me. Tell me if this is what happened is like... I talk so much about how we underestimate the amount of time that things take, but I could see somebody hearing that and then completely overcompensating where you're like, great, now I'll just add twice as much time. And then all of a sudden you have all this work and you're like, I can't possibly get this done. Is that kind of what happened? That's exactly what happened. Okay. Yeah. So here's one of the things I like to say, and I'll just say this for anyone who this is happening for. If you're a person who finds that you chronically underestimate, so meaning you give yourself way more work than can possibly get done in the time you've allocated, your brain's solution to that, the first solution everyone comes up with is give myself more time. And it sounds like such an obvious solution, but it's actually not always the right solution because what it is, is it's solving without actually solving the root issue. We want to know why are you underestimating? And sometimes you're like, I didn't actually investigate the full scope of the project, right? I didn't actually understand. I didn't take the time to understand all the action steps. Maybe that's happening. Or you're like, I actually do give myself an appropriate amount of time, but then I get into perfectionist tweaking and then I go down this rabbit hole of of tweaking and editing. Or I do give myself an appropriate amount of time, but then I let myself get distracted when I feel a negative emotion. So there's all these other things that are happening when you're chronically underestimating. And we need to understand why you're doing it in order to actually come up with the right solution. So I love that you just sat with that. You figured out the root of the problem and then you solve for that, but not from negative emotion. Brava. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. It was hard. It was hard. And I, 
Um, I would not have done it if you hadn't told me many times in the Slack channel. <laughs> you know, I suggest, you were so kind, I suggest <laughs> that you sit with these emotions. I suggest that you do the feelings now worksheet again. <laughs> Yeah. And so this is one of the worksheets that you get when you join the program. And I will say so often I'm like, go there first. I can tell when somebody comes to me in Slack and they're in really heightened negative emotion just by the way they write their sentences. Or this doesn't happen anymore, but I used to get clients who would come into the Slack channel and write in caps with exclamation points, help. And I jokingly implemented a rule. I'm like, if you ever ask me in caps, help, I will not help you because, and I'm going to explain why. When you're in that space, let's call that like your nervous system is activated, right? So you're in fight or flight or freeze or fawn. You're like heightened emotions. And then your brain tries to get out of those heightened emotions by problem solving. But the level at which you problem solve when you're in a nervous system reaction is going to be so low quality. You can't actually see all of the options and possibilities So we generally in society will feel a negative emotion and then we'll try to get out of it by problem solving. But in the program, we do the opposite, which is exactly what you did, partly with my help and partly just intuitively, I think, which was you felt the negative emotion. You noticed that you attempted to problem solve your way out of it. You brought your emotion down instead first, and then the available options became so clear. It's really a different way of doing things. It really is. And as you were kind of outlining that process, it just occurred to me that self-trust is such a key piece of this. And I think it's why when I finished with this process of sitting with those emotions and kind of figuring out that fear was really at the root of this particular challenge, that really I had to trust myself to know, like, I do know how long it's going to take me. I do know what the pitfalls are. And with that self-trust, I had the confidence to implement the bare minimum method, you know, at that point and say, okay, given that I do have these perfectionistic tendencies and, you know, given that I am feeling this fear, like, you know, what would it be like to trust myself and to say, like, here is really what needs to be done. And, and that did help me lose the perfectionism or at least put it aside for this project. You just gave a really excellent tip to anybody who's like, okay, that sounds nice to have self-trust, but I don't. Is a workaround or a little hack is what would it be like if I did have self-trust, right? I always ask that in different ways. I'm like, what would it be like if you are already feeling calm or peaceful or relaxed or self-assured? And when you ask it like that, your brain comes up with really good solutions. You're like, I can pretend to have self-trust. And then your brain gives you all the ideal solutions anyway, right? So you're almost like, I call it acting as if. You're acting as if you have self-trust and in the process, you build your self-trust. So I love that you are willing to do that. And and I will say too, that the kind of external view kind of all supported this, the sort of external evidence. So I actually heard this week from the editor for whom I was writing this article, this chapter. And, you know, it's always a little nerve wracking to hear back about a draft or a, a manuscript. I won't say I was nervous because I did trust in the work that I had done, but I had implemented some kind of anti-perfectionist measures in my work. And so when I heard back, I opened the email like a little bit, you know, I wonder what this is going to be. And it was actually, they had no comments about the content. They had nothing to change. I mean, like literally they just said I needed to format it for the publication and like, then I'm done. 
So it was really nice to have that external validation that like being able to back off from my perfectionist way of being, I think allowed me to really focus on what was important and to create that argument, to do the work to my, it's funny, like I want to say like to my best standards, even though I didn't focus on all the little nitpicky things. My brain just exploded in so many directions (laughs) that we could go. Okay. (laughs) I just have to say a few things. First of all, anti-perfectionist measures. I freaking love that terminology and I want to hear about (laughs) what you did specifically. The second thing I want to point out is you implemented anti-perfectionist measures, you waited for feedback, and then you confirmed for yourself, you used the lack of feedback, I guess, to affirm and confirm for yourself that it was okay to not be perfect, quote unquote. That's how you increase your tolerance for not being perfect is in little ways you take more and more risks and you just use that as like, okay, we're okay here. We're good. So I love that you're just increasing your capacity. The other thing, and I'm going to make a podcast episode on this. I've been really playing with this idea of true value. And it's this idea of what is the actual value in your case of this paper versus what is the false value, right? So the false value is all the small nitpicky things that don't actually matter. And you just didn't indulge in any of that. And you just went for true value. So that is amazing. And I cannot believe that I was able to do it. I mean, I I do. I I remember, I think the last thing I posted to you in Slack was like, I know how I did this. And yet it also feels like a miracle. (laughs) Totally. And it will, right? It will. The first few times you're like, wait a second. Am I really this amazing? Yes. It turns out I am. (laughs) Okay. Tell me real quick. I have just a few more questions for you, but I want to hear what were the anti-perfectionist measures you did? Well, the first one was noticing when I was going down rabbit holes. And this can happen really easily with research. I could follow the trail of a footnote, you know, and spend two hours doing that. And what I was able to do was fairly quickly notice when that was happening. So rather than spend the two hours and think, what did I just do? You know, I was able to notice like five or 10 minutes in to say, oh, wow, I think that this is not productive I can add this to a list and return to it later, or maybe I'll add a post-it note to my mind map. And you know, sometimes I did need to go back and do more work on that, but most of the time I didn't. Yes, that is so good is distinguishing. One is just catching yourself before you fall into rabbit holes, building your awareness like, oh, I don't even have to go down that rabbit hole. And then I love that you made a note of it and trusted your future self to make the decision. Is this actually worth pursuing? That's so good. Yeah. I'm trying to think what else I did. Revisions can be a source of a lot of perfectionism. And I think that I allowed myself, um, this is going to be feel a little bit woo-woo maybe, but I think I allowed myself to follow my intuition a little bit more rather than struggling through. So I think in the past, I may have been like really struggling with a passage or a section and just like, this is, you know, it's just something I have to get through. I have to figure it out. And, you know, when I was going through the program, I was able to say, you know what, maybe this section is actually not necessary, or maybe there's something about this section that isn't working. So I think I was able to lift up and kind of look at the whole, you know, how does this piece fit into the whole rather than struggling kind of in the trenches? Oh, that's so good. Zooming out. That's so good. I'm also thinking, I always joke that we think if a project falls apart in the middle, something's gone wrong. But I always joke that if the project doesn't fall apart in the middle, something's gone wrong. It's only half a joke. But I'm like, <laughs> we, we have that, right? Where you're like, it's all not working. 
everything's gone right. (laughs) You know, as I'm thinking about this, I think a really powerful anti-perfectionist measure was reminding myself of my expertise. So, you know, when I was tempted to try to like cover my ass or, you know, defend something in advance of a possible criticism, I tried to remind myself that I'm an expert in this field. It doesn't mean I don't make mistakes. Like certainly I make mistakes, but I don't have to be so defensive. I can be strong in what I know that I offer to my audiences. And that felt so good to be able to move from really, as, as I work with my clients, this is something we work on a lot, moving from a kind of graduate school perspective that we hold on to where like every detail feels important and we have to prove every little thing to being in a place where that's not necessary, where I can kind of be fully authentic as a scholar, as a writer and feel comfortable with that. I love that. That is such a good almost closing point of just owning our expertise. And that's not to say that you're not going to have imposter syndrome, right? That can be there too. But where are you spending the majority of your time? Are you spending the majority of your time with the story that you're not good enough and you don't know what you're talking about and everyone's going to disagree with you so you need to preemptively defend yourself? Or I'm an expert who makes mistakes. I'm willing to make mistakes, but I also know what I'm talking about. We talk a lot in the program about self-concept when your self-concept is just the collection of beliefs that you have about yourself. And so- I think that's a really perfect example is like you're just building your self-concept the way that you talk about yourself every single day. I'm so excited to ask you this question. You said something on our last call and I know you just saw my face like light up and I've been thinking about it literally every single day since that moment. It really meant something to me and I would love to have you explain it further. So you described Half Finished to Done Live as a lot more countercultural than you expected. What does that mean to you? I think I had some expectations about a productivity sort of mindset that were blissfully absent from this program. (laughs) That instead of a sort of grind culture, like, let's just get it done. I mean, this is why I signed up, right? That the bare minimum challenge had shown me that this was a different way of being. And yet still, I really was so wonderfully delighted to see how radical this program truly is. And I think it's because you invite us to reevaluate what matters. You invite us to really understand the choices that we're making and how our choices really shape not just how we spend our time, but ourselves and the people around us. I may or may not be crying. (laughs) It means so much to me. You've mentioned the word values a lot, and that is so deeply important to me to create a space where people can learn their own values and follow their own values. I've just been thinking about it since you mentioned the countercultural, and I was like, why does this mean so much to me? And it means so much to me because we are in a time in our society, and I think especially in Western culture, where I'm like, we are not well. <laughs> we are not doing well. I would say collectively, a pandemic. We're just, at the time of this recording, we just had this school shooting. Mental health challenges are on the rise. Like We are just collectively not thriving, in my opinion. So when you say countercultural, I'm like, fuck, yes. We should be countercultural, right? I look at people and I'm like, people are not having fun running their businesses. They're not having fun being themselves. 
And I so deeply believe that we can have all of that, right? We can enjoy the process, right? We can enjoy our lives. We can enjoy and be proud of ourselves when it's rough. We can like ourselves. We can have negative emotions about the things we actually want to have negative emotions about. Like we should feel sad. We should feel horrified at some of the things that are happening in the world. And we can sit with that and we can process that and we can take action from a cleaner place. So when you say countercultural, I'm like, absolutely, (laughs) right? Like let's be the small minority that looks inward, feeds ourselves, and then can go out and use that renewed, nourished energy to help other people, no matter what kind of work you're doing in the world. So thank you for saying that. You are making that possible for so many people. And I just want to acknowledge that in you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I think this is actually a great segue into you and your work. So if you want to just give a quick plug for who should hunt you down, who can find you and who can work with you, because I know you're doing really life-changing work as well. Thank you. Yeah. So you can find me at Karen GR Coaching on Instagram. My Instagram is really um, geared toward academics. I work mostly with faculty members. I do workshops for colleges and universities. So I have a group program called Freedom at Mid-Career, where we talk all about self-compassion. We talk about self-trust. We talk about rest. We talk about play. This is really my approach to rethinking our, our lives in the academy. So if play, if rest, if compassion, if fun and satisfaction and enjoyment are things that you're seeking, follow me and let me know what you're thinking about. Those are all very, very good things that we should all definitely be seeking more of. So yes, go ahead and follow Karen. Karen, thank you so much for joining on this episode of the podcast. So great to chat with you. And thank you for saying yes to the program. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Half Finished to Done podcast. If you're ready to become a self-assured repeat project finisher, the best place to work with me is in my eight-week group coaching program, Half Finished to Done Live. You'll leave our time together with one finished project and the skills you need to finish any project, personal or business, in the future. Just head to peakcoaching.co slash HFD live for your next step. Can't wait to work with you.